Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Last week, we started to take a closer look at the New York City mayoral primary, and we're going to continue that coverage today. There's an assumption embedded in that primary that whoever wins is going to become the next mayor of New York City. And that's because New York is heavily Democratic. Three quarters of the city voted for President Biden in the 2020 election. And New York isn't alone, of course. The Democratic Party dominates in cities large and small across the country, while the Republican Party dominates in rural and exurban areas. That dynamic is one of the most ironclad trends in American politics. Population density can seem to trump just about everything. Today, we're going to put the New York City primary in context by looking more broadly at the relationship between urban centers and the Democratic Party. Cities have huge concentrations of Democratic voters, but what does that mean for the party nationally, and how will the race like the one in New York shape and be shaped by national Democratic politics? We've asked two experts to come on the show and help us answer those questions. Both have done a lot of thinking on the past, present, and future of urban political power and what New York might pretend. To kick things off, here with us is political science professor at Stanford University, Jonathan Rodin. He's the author of the book, Why Cities Lose, The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Political Divide. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. I know that the answer to this question could and has spanned an entire book, but we'll go broad and then we'll get into some of the details. Why is democratic political power concentrated in cities? This is something that started around the New Deal era when the Democrats became an an urban party, mainly as a function of trying to mobilize urban, kind of densely populated working class voters associated with labor unions. Uh, So that concentration of Democrats in urban areas started then, and something similar happened with labor voters in Britain, in Australia, and uh, throughout Europe, really. But what's interesting is that that concentration of Democratic voters in cities really increased even as the class conflict and the relationship between income and voting decreased. That relationship between density and Democratic voting increased uh, a lot starting in the 1980s, and it's increased uh, ever since then as politics has changed from something that's about class conflict to something that has uh, more of a, a cultural component. Why is that? It seems like the Democratic coalition in cities today is a pretty diverse coalition of voters, a lot of working class voters of color and knowledge economy elites. Why is there so much overlap in terms of political preference when you might think that they have different political priorities? Yeah, my sense of it is that once the Democrats became an urban party and they came to be dominant in those urban districts in the state legislature and in Congress, so in a place like Massachusetts, when the knowledge economy is taking off in Boston and Cambridge, you know, the Democrats are the, that, that's who you go to if you want to get something done. Uh, the entire power structure is, is democratic. And so that initial relationship between the knowledge economy employers and the Democrats st- starts out in, in places like Boston and Seattle and the Bay Area, places where the Democrats were already dominant. And so the idea is that the Democratic Party kind of takes on the interests of urban residents as those interests kind of uh, evolve 
This is something that happened, uh, I think, very clearly with race and civil rights. It's something that happened with uh, abortion, gay marriage, and, and, and social issues. And most recently, it's happened with the interests of the knowledge economy. So it's like the Democrats respond to the interests of urban residents, and that starts to become part of what the Democratic platform or the perception of the platform is, some of the things the Democrats do in office. Uh, and then that builds on itself. And that's and the Democrats has become an increasingly diverse coalition of urban interests. I want to get a little deeper into the Democratic dynamics. But first, obviously, the mirror image of this trend is how Republican rural areas are. You kind of described a dynamic where there are kind of proactive reasons that cities became so Democratic. Are there likewise proactive reasons why rural and exurban areas became so Republican, or is that more of a reaction to what was happening in cities? That's a good question. I think it's a it's a combination of those. I think some of it is reactive, but some of it is also is proactive. I think if we go back to the 80s and we look at the moment, you know, in the, in the 70s, it wasn't clear if you were opposed to abortion, which party you should vote for. But uh, starting in, in the 1980s, it becomes very clear and so uh, I think there are rural and exurban individuals who, who, for whom social issues are very salient, who are migrating into the Republican Party slowly over that period. Uh, and then I think most recently, if we look at the positions the, in the era of Trump that the Republican Party has taken on trade and uh, relationship with China, this is something that resonates with people in the in the areas where competition uh, with China has has increased the most. This is another area where, uh, you know, white working class voters are switching their allegiance, uh, at least for the moment, in, in rural and exurban areas where manufacturing is still, is still trying to hold on. The trend that you described starts during the New Deal era politics. Is it a straight line trend or have cities fluctuated over that period? You know, initially it was very heterogeneous. Initially, the Democrats were, if anything, in the 1920s, were stronger in rural areas. Uh, and then in the late 1920s, it was the case that the Democrats got a foothold in city politics in, in New York and in Boston. That was really where they started to become a working class type of party. And then that spread slowly to other places. So initially there was a there was a Republican machine in places like Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia. So eventually when Al Smith gets the nomination in, in 1928, the Democrats start to become a more urban party in more cities. But that took place slowly. And it took place first in the Northeast, but it didn't really happen in like the Mountain West and places like that until much later. And it didn't happen in the Deep South until this recent period of massive increase in, in urban-rural polarization since the 1980s. So it was not linear. It was something that, that, that really happened. Uh, the timing of it was different in different places. But what's interesting about the Reagan era is that's when everything started to converge. You had all these idiosyncratic rural places that still voted for Democrats uh, up until fairly recently. And one of the things that's happened in the last few elections is that all these places are slowly falling away. I mean, there, there was um, a time when 
southeast Missouri, there was, if you made a map of the old lead mining areas, just like make a, make a map of lead mines in southeast Missouri and contemporary election results, you would see this blue uh, belt associated with rural mining constituencies that voted for Democrats. And that slowly disappeared and now it's gone. You know, there were parts of rural Iowa and western Wisconsin that were quite rural, but still still voted for Democrats. And that's one of the things we've seen changing is that state by state, these old patterns fall away and they all kind of snap onto this same urban-rural cleavage. Postal Service data analyzed by CBS showed that about 330,000 people left New York since the beginning of March 2020, of course, in many ways related to the pandemic. We've seen similar trends in other big cities like San Francisco, Chicago, L.A., Has the pandemic changed American political geography? I think that's something we're all still trying to figure out. But I think one thing we are, people are starting to agree on and get some consensus on is that the nature of the changes we're seeing post-pandemic are not completely new and uh, coming out of nowhere. There really are, are strengthening of trends that we had already seen. I mean, there are some exceptions to that, like San Francisco is just really um, losing population in a way that that is... I still think kind of surprising. But the overall uh, suburbanization, it's something that it seems less obvious just in the media and the kind of the way we we think about the world. But uh, suburbanization has been happening, kind of of continuing all throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And we just saw a, a kind of an increase in that in that process. Uh, and also the other the places, even people who are making interstate moves and moving to to completely new areas. They're moving to places that were already rapidly gaining population in the first place. So, you know, suburban Austin, Texas and Houston and places like that. American suburban sprawl is continuing. And if anything, the pandemic seems to have uh, have just turned it up a notch. The dynamic here is a little bit complicated, too, because I think before the pandemic, there was this conception that there had been a revitalization of urban cores. It sounds like you're saying that increased suburbanization was happening at the same time. And one of the things I've learned about this is is it's really difficult to speak in general terms about American cities. I mean, what's happening in places like Cleveland, St. Louis, and Cincinnati is not quite the same as as what's happened in places like New York. And so some of those cities have uh, indeed drawn some people back to the urban core uh, in, in in the last 20 years. But on the whole, we're still, you know, when we look at all the data from all the cities, we still see a, a gradual depopulation of the urban core, even if it might be the case that some young people with different preferences, you know, who want a different type of a residential experience have been returning to the urban core. Uh, so I, I think it, it is the case that some cities have uh, have really reinvented themselves and done very well and have gained population in the period before the pandemic. Uh, but that's an experience that really is uh, somewhat unique to a, to a handful of, of knowledge economy cities that have attracted a certain type of, of labor market opportunity that the vast majority of American cities have not been able to attract. So I think it's important to understand that heterogeneity when trying to think that through. As you mentioned, as America becomes more suburbanized and people potentially move to either new quickly growing cities or the suburban areas around them, is that changing our politics? Is it changing the Democratic Party? That's certainly what the Democrats are, are, are in some ways hoping for. One of the things I point out at the end of my book is that we think about the, the problem the Democrats face with this excessive concentration in cities and the ways that makes it difficult for the party to compete in the pivotal 
competitive districts around the middle of the distribution, these kind of mixed and suburban districts. Um, if that's if, if we can agree that that is a problem that the Democrats face, and it's driven by a function of geography and gerrymandering, and we ask ourselves, well, what are the ways out of that problem? One of them is, is residential mobility. And so if it's true that cities are depopulating and people are m- moving to these sprawling areas, in fact, this suggests that we're not moving toward just the, the big sort uh, constantly um, you know, reinventing itself and, and becoming stronger. If anything, the movements that people are currently making are taking people from very democratic places and they're putting them in more purple places, uh, or they're taking places that were sort of red and turning them purple. Uh, so again, returning to places like uh, suburban areas in Texas, uh, and of course, I think most famously, suburban areas uh, around Atlanta and Phoenix. So in these pivotal states, uh, everyone focuses on the statewide races, which, of course, uh, there are good reasons to do that. People care a lot about Senate races, and we care a lot about the Electoral College. But uh, there's also something else interesting going on, which is that given this problem of of geography the Democrats face in the districted elections, like state legislatures and the U.S. Congress, it's conceivable that this uh, this suburbanization and these interstate moves and these growing kind of sprawling purple and increasingly blue uh, suburban areas will make it more difficult for, uh, you know, the, the task of gerrymandering for uh, Republican legislators in Georgia and Texas becomes a bit more challenging when it's such a moving target, when we have such a, a rapidly transforming suburban area and you've got to try to draw districts for, for a 10-year period when uh, lots of things are changing. That, I think, is that's one of the more interesting areas of things to keep an eye on as this as this residential uh, transformation takes place. All right. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. The tension between urban power centers and the suburbs luring away their residents was on the minds of the New York mayoral candidates during two recent debates. The candidates were all eager to discuss how they wanted to make the city vibrant enough to retain its citizens and attract those who left during the pandemic back into the five boroughs. Take a listen. We should be investing significant sums, and I I mean like far more than the 30 million that Bill de Blasio has proposed to make our streets safer and more appealing, but then also to promote our city and get that energy back because that's the best way we're gonna help that restaurant stay open is by getting customers back. I have called for actually ending the corporate welfare system and investing those dollars in our small and mid-sized businesses. A fee and fine holiday for at least a year and untangle the red tape that's strangling our small businesses. What are we doing right now to deal with the over-proliferation of handguns, to deal with the gang problem? The simple truth is you will never get gun violence down if the solve rate for shootings in Brooklyn is below 25%, which is what it is right now. We have gone from a pandemic of COVID to an epidemic of gun violence. Every time there's a call for more police, we end up not solving the problem. This has got to be the new way of looking at it, and that means investing in mental health professionals. I have been Black all my life, and that means I know two things. I know what it is like to fear crime, and I know what it's like to fear police violence. That's just one way that national trends inform the local issues in the New York City mayoral race. 
To understand the other ways, we called up Esther Fuchs. She's a political science professor and director of the Urban and Social Policy Program at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. She also served as a special advisor to the mayor for governance and strategic planning under New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Last week, we spoke with two New York City-based reporters about some of the dynamics at play in the mayoral race. Broadening that out a bit, what are the biggest political debates going on in American cities today? Lots of times when people look at New York, they think we are sui generis. We have nothing to do with the rest of the country. It's very popular in presidential debates to trash New York because uh, many Republicans (laughs) think that's a way to get votes. In reality, New York is not just a bellwether, but it's also a leader. And when you look at New York, you'll find a microcosm of just about everything good and bad that is going on in cities across the United States. So when we think about challenges, obviously, the thing we most think about at this moment is the state of our cities post-COVID, essentially our our recovery from uh, what people like to call a trifecta of crises, right? Public health, the economy, and race relations, all of which are playing out right now in every major city across the country. And add to that the secondary impacts of COVID, which are around the impacts in low-income communities on public education, where there has been a disproportionate negative impact coming from schooling online during this period and the loss of jobs, which has disproportionately impacted low-income populations and communities of color. And of course, the increase in crime. And we see the impact of all of this in New York writ large, and every city in the country is having to deal with all of these crises all at once. What are the biggest challenges that the next mayor of New York faces? I want to put them in some sort of a reasonable order, but it's really hard to disconnect the set of challenges that have come out of the last year, I would say, of crises. Uh, New York, its first challenge is really crime and economic recovery. Basically, population left New York during COVID for a variety of reasons, and so is business. And small businesses, we just did a survey of small businesses, were devastated devastated during COVID. And, and, you know, over half of New York City's small businesses are owned by women or minorities, which is typical uh, of most other places, other cities. And small businesses are the largest source of jobs. They're not, not necessarily the largest source of tax revenue, but they are the largest source of jobs. So the economic recovery is critical to doing everything else. New York has to fund basic services, police, fire, sanitation, education, and you cannot do it unless people are working and paying taxes and they are living within the city limits because that's who we can tax. That's the situation for every city. Every city can only tax the folks and the businesses who live within their city limits. And so the first order of business is to stabilize the economy, to stop the movement of of people and businesses out of the city, and to focus on quality of life, of which crime is the first piece of that 
quality of life puzzle. Most important at the city level politics, which is different than national politics, is this quality of life thing, right? That plays very importantly for people's decisions about where they want to live. If you are living in an unsafe area, if you feel like the city is unsafe, people who are middle class leave, they move out. We've been through this before. We've been through this in the 70s and the 80s. And people move for jobs, frankly, also. But of course, those are primarily the middle class people who enrich people who can do that. Poor people are less mobile. So the last thing we want to do is to concentrate poverty more in central cities. You talked about some broad ranging issues, crime, police reform, there's housing and homelessness, there's education, quality of life issues, questions of environment and preparing for climate change and things like that. Can we dig in a little deeper to what debates are playing out and what solutions are being offered? That's such an interesting question. So if I could back us up for a second, I think it's important since we're talking about cities, you know, to make two points, which is cities are now actually making policy around all of those issues that you mentioned around around environmental policy, around, around economic development, around poverty alleviation, around immigration policy, things that historically, no one ever thought were the purview of cities. I mean, think about climate change, right? You know, we can make climate uh, laws in New York. Uh, we can restrict the use of fossil fuels and things of that sort. But if New Jersey chooses to continue to do that, we can't put up a wall and, uh, and protect ourselves from the dirty, polluted air that's being created in New Jersey. Yet, yet, climate change and environmental policy has become squarely in the purview of cities. And so this is a great example of, the, of, of something now that we understand a lot better, which is, I think cities ended up engaging in these policy areas because, you know, we had a long period of policy by the Democrats and Republicans who basically punted on a lot of domestic policy issues and we didn't make much progress. And we also had a long period of essentially abandoning cities in this country, of ignoring cities, of not understanding the importance of cities to uh, the the economic well-being uh, of America. And so the consequence of that was that cities uh, started to develop their own policies, finally, to focus on a range of areas of problems that had been inherently understood to be better tackled either at the state, regional, or national level. The other point that I want to put on the table for everybody to understand is city politics is not the same as national politics, and city policy is not the same. We are limited and restricted by something called Dillon's Rule. Hate to be so esoteric here, but everybody should know Dillon's Rule because Dillon's Rule is directly connected to federalism And it's the thing that essentially says cities don't really exist except as creatures of state governments. So cities are not in the American Constitution. They don't have legal authority that was conferred on them by the federal government. Cities are creations of state governments and states give home rule to cities, but what they give, they can take away. And there is an extraordinarily important politics between city and state 
governments where the states have all the cards, essentially, and in which cities are often very much restricted about what how they can tax and the kinds of policies that they can create. You know, most people know even education policy. In most cities, mayors don't control education policy for their city. Some some sort of board does, and, and you have to live with it. The only way you get that changed is through the state government making that change. So why is that important? It's important because when you look at the way the divisions, and, and particularly most cities are, dominated by the Democratic Party right now. And when you look at the divisions within the Democratic Party, you see among the left progressives an agenda at the city level, which most of the issues that they want to tackle and solve are very difficult for cities to do alone without the support of the national government. I mean, this is changing with the Biden administration, for the moment at least, Uh, The American Rescue Plan, which is an extraordinary infusion of funds into cities, is really, really important to this conversation and, and what the cities can do. But cities have legal mandates for most of their budget. What kind of tensions are these political debates creating within the Democratic Party or our politics more broadly? So I think, you know, when you think about the tensions in the Democratic Party and you think about New York City, most of the country thinks about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was that, you know, tremendous upset victory in her congressional campaign against an incumbent who no one, and I mean no one, (laughs) expected to lose. They should have, but they didn't. Um, And, of course, uh, Ocasio-Cortez comes from the so-called progressive left wing of the Democratic Party, and her victory in that congressional race was something that was pretty much heard all across the country in the Democratic Party. And what we see now in New York and in the mayoral campaign and in all of our city council races is a really interesting dynamic. I like to call it the left-leaning progressives versus the old-school liberals with a smattering of moderate Democrats uh, in the mix over there. And I think that within cities, at least, uh, this is really the nature of the political divisions now. It's really kind of left progressives who are really want to restructure politics along the lines of the Bernie Sanders uh, agenda and old school liberals who kind of understand city politics and its variations and what can be done at the city level, which is way different than what we can do in national politics. Democrats dominate in cities, Republicans dominate in rural and exurban areas. And in many ways that shapes the party's politics, but Democrats are at somewhat of a a disadvantage structurally because of their dominance in cities. Is the Democratic Party able to be a party of cities, or does it need to be a party that caters more to suburban and like swing voters in a way that Republicans might not necessarily need to in order to win majorities and so on? So, you know, this is such an important question, I think. And just to sort of the historical perspective on this, you know, Reagan was the first president to win without the support of not one single major city uh, in this country. And um, ironically, though, before that, Jimmy Carter was the president who started to decrease federal funding to cities. 
And so we've had a kind of uh, situation in which uh, national policy has been made without the input, um, the serious input from, from cities in terms of need. I mean, the fact that we're so behind in infrastructure is another really good example of ignoring cities. Now, what's changed? There's a couple of things that's that's changed, and I think that's part of what the Democratic Party is struggling with. It's it is a kind of transformational moment in American politics nationally, and cities are very important in that in that transformation. So, two things have changed. One is this sort of the economic base of the whole country depends on cities right now, and that and that has become clearer to people. And up until COVID. We had a very strong migration back into central cities and the sort of creation of regional hubs, essentially, where the city was the center and the suburbs and exurbs were the spoke of these regional economies placed within a larger global economy. So within that context, people start to realize, to a certain extent, cities are really important. The other transformation is sort of interesting in reverse, which is part of the reason cities could be ignored for so long was they were places where poverty concentrated and where minority populations concentrated. And not just because of the electoral college, but because of the way party politics had been structured, it was viewed we could take minority votes for granted. And then in the electoral college, they were less needed and they were likely to be more associated with low-income populations. Suburbs have become more pluralistic, more multicultural, more multiracial. That is to say, minorities uh, of all different kinds have moved out to the suburbs. And the whole concept of minority doesn't really make much sense anymore. America is becoming what we would call a majority-minority country. And the nature of voting is... uh, if we really look at it carefully in terms of these kinds of broad categories, even in the last election, um, even though the Democratic Party won the majority of the Hispanic vote, there was all kinds of shifts in the Hispanic vote that went to the Republican Party and not just in the border areas of Texas and Arizona. But that's more complex than these kind of monolithic voting blocks uh, that we've used in the past to discuss the differences between the two major political parties. So when you think about this in the context of, you know, the populations of cities becoming more diverse, while the populations of suburbs are becoming more diverse, um, we won't be able to make those distinctions. Do you think that the divide between cities and rural areas is being frustrated because of contemporary migration patterns? I actually think that there's less of a divide between cities and rural areas. We talk about cities and rural areas are not that significant anymore. They don't, it's not a big piece of the voting block. It's really these sort of more suburban and exurban areas that maybe have the split. So, and the suburbs are complicated. You have what, you know, used to be called the soccer moms uh, as a swing population in terms of voting who are liberal on social issues, tend to be more conservative on on economic issues. Uh, Now, with crime going up, 
no one really knows where they're going to come down. They're they're one of the true swing voters that still exist in the American uh, electorate. And then you have African-American suburbs. You've got suburbs with Hispanics. Um, you've got poor suburbs. So the concept of suburbia uh, as, a, as a, a political grouping, I think, is is more complex than it used to be in the same way that's that the uh, cities, central cities, I would say, you know, the the legal jurisdiction of the city, as I like to call it, um, is also very different. The nature of immigrant populations and older ethnic and racial groups that have been in, in cities for a long time represents often some political fault lines. For example, in the African-American community, native-born African-Americans and Caribbean Americans often find themselves in different places. New immigrants don't necessarily vote the same way as African-Americans who who migrated from the South to the North and Central City. So if you unpack this, that's why you can, you, you see that you don't have these monolithic votes anymore. And particularly in New York, it's so fascinating because we've got ranked choice voting for the first time and we've got 10 candidates in our uh, mayoral election. But you see uh, different kinds of voting patterns where you don't, you're not going to see African-Americans all voting for one candidate or Jewish Americans all voting for one candidate. Um, or for that matter, the white, you know, white ethnics in the outer boroughs all voting for one candidate. So there are splits now within these so-called monolithic voting blocks that are more reflective of uh, ideological views, positions on issues, um, and also the specific candidates who are running. And that you see very clearly in the Democratic primaries. Given the challenges that you laid out, You've also described a situation in which there are pretty big cleavages within the Democratic Party over how to solve them. Who seems to be winning at this point in these debates that are going on in cities? And I ask that question both specific to New York City, but also across the country more broadly, where it seems like progressives are doing better so far in mayoral races and and local races than they might be doing in New York City. So I think the debate in New York is is complicated by the fact that, um, first of all, we just had a we're just coming off eight years of a progressive mayor who most people view as a complete failure, except for his universal pre-K program. So after eight years of progressive rhetoric, but I even think progressives progressives view him as a failure, too. So it's not just old school liberal Democrats who view him as a failure. But what's also clear in New York City is that for citywide elections, it's much more difficult to make an extreme progressive case. And this is why nobody, uh, and, and this is really about New York City politics, and I can't say that it's generalizable, but I think the question is probably relevant. In New York City politics, you have to create a coalition. There is not one single group that dominates. So if you're in a city where one group dominates, whether it's a racial group or an income group or an ideological group, well, then it's obviously easier to win. But in New York, who dominates New York City politics? You can't 
Whites don't dominate. They're not a monolithic uh, population. Blacks don't dominate. Hispanics don't dominate. You know, you can't point to a religious group that dominates. And certainly within the Democratic Party, the progressives are not the dominant force. We've got moderates. We've got, as I said, old school liberals. We've got progressives within the Democratic Party. And then there are even independents and Republicans out there. So let's say you're in the Democratic primary, you can't, and you see this playing out now, and it's pretty, pretty interesting. You cannot simply win as a progressive. There's just not enough progressives who vote. Now, part of it is also turnout. Who's likely to turn out? And we know older voters are still more likely to turn out. So in general, the data shows, for example, that you know, whites are disproportionately represented. Older white voters are disproportionately represented in the primaries because they turn out. Um, so that impacts how you put together your majority coalition. And, you know, it was it, it, it when you look at this race right now, you see that that uh, each candidate is trying to peel off a piece of the other candidates uh, base electorate. If they if they don't have a base, they're in they're in trouble to begin with. But this had de Blasio was able to win by get his in his first race by getting 30 percent of the black vote. And he, and he also combined that with a lot of white ethnic votes from the outer boroughs, um, partly because they, his name was Bill de Blasio. And, you know, uh, he didn't run as a progressive then uh, in those races. The advertising that went to those communities was very different, for example, than the advertising that went to black communities in New York with pictures of his wife and his son. So this was a strategy to create a coalition. And that's the kind of thing that has to be done in New York. Not one group dominates. That, to me, reflects broad national politics. We don't have one group that actually dominates American politics right now. And we're in the middle of what, in my old political science hat, I think we would call a realignment, where out of this, uh, God knows what will happen to the Republican Party once they sort out the Trump thing or if they sort out the Trump, the Trump thing. Um, but the Democratic Party is also uh, in the throes of change in which they have to decide and will decide to what extent will they still be able to appeal to suburban white voters as well as as minorities and urban left leaning urban voters. And this, you know, Biden put together an old school coalition to win. And a lot of people said that wasn't viable. And yet he did that. And so it's it's not obvious to me um, where this ends. What will the new majority party at the end of a realignment period, we a party, either a new party comes, uh, which I think is not likely a third party emerging or one of the two main parties uh, essentially reconfigures itself with a different majority coalition uh, that will reflect a, a period of stability in American politics. We are not there yet. We are in the throes of this change as we speak right now. And, you know, I think New York is this sort of the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, in terms of reflecting 
um, what will happen to the broader Democratic Party nationally. All right. Well, let's leave things there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for today. We're now just a little over two weeks away from primary election day in New York. And we'll keep you posted on how these debates and trends shake out. For now, my name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.